hello. On this special day when we are one month away from Kenobi, I welcome you gladly to the Star Wars Universe podcast. We have Kenobi-specific content coming out. We're going to do more of it. I've got some great guests lined up, but today we're talking about Star Wars Rebels Season 3, Episodes 3, 4, and 5, along with some listener feedback and a couple words from our sponsor. All that more after a commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back. I'm Matthew, your host. I'm joined on all Rebel Things. Well, we hope most Rebel Things by Riki and Sarah Hayashi. Hayashi family, how y'all doing tonight? We're good. She's the Rebel spy. What? No, who told you? (laughs) I have no idea what you're talking about. We're not going to figure that out. Uh, (laughs) Let's get to some feedback, though, because we got some great feedback. First, just a comment that I I think we discussed already, but I want to, I think this guy goes in great detail, so it's important to talk about it. Also, before I read this first piece of feedback, it does contain spoilers for both The Clone Wars and Mandalorian. So if you don't want to hear that, I'd skip ahead about two or three minutes. And this feedback comes from Mike Danq. I think I'm pronouncing that right. I'm sorry, Michael Danq. Well, he says Michael Danq and then Mike Danq. So I hope that one's okay. But if I get the long last name wrong, please correct us. They write, you mentioned that you were unsure about the owl in Star Wars Rebels. This is going back a couple episodes to before Twilight of the Apprentice. We're like, oh yeah, there's that owl. What's that mean? The owl's name is Morai, and it is the manifestation of the sister from the Star Wars The Clone Wars Mortis Trilogy of episodes entitled The Mortis Trilogy. Very original title. In those episodes, Ahsoka dies and is brought back to life when the sister transfers her life essence into Ahsoka. The owl from that point on can be seen near Ahsoka in some episodes, most notably in the season finale when Vader finds Ahsoka's lightsaber. You can see Morai flying overhead. Mariah is also visible in the Mandalorian episode, in which Ahsoka debuts, perched in a tree as the Mandalorian approaches Ahsoka's location, as well in later Rebels episodes, as you'll notice as the series progresses. Hope that helps. Mike Danicu. Uh Yeah, that's awesome. I, I remember some of those details, but I think I hadn't put all those pieces together. I think we had gotten established, someone else had written in and reminded us, or, or one of you two had reminded me that the owl was associated with Ahsoka, but I just, I just love getting all that detail. Yeah, I think we had Paul on... To talk about Twilight of the Apprentice, and I know Paul remembered too, and Riki had done a little bit of reading into it. But yeah, it's it's so cool, <laughs> and I love yeah. that it's on Sabine's armor now too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I just love that so much. I think it's such a great just way of building a through line and of showing that the little things that happen do continue. You know, Ahsoka had this experience, and it's never going away. Mm. It's not just it happened. We're done. Well. Those were not my favorite episodes, the Mortis trilogy, so I did have to look it up. I'm going to need you two to remember these details about those episodes, because I've just blocked it from my memory. I have goldfish brain. I can't remember details. Everything is a brand new experience to me. I mean, that's why we need great fans like Michael. Yes. So there we go. So our second piece of feedback, we started to get into this question a little bit, and Wedge Forever has written in and asked... You talked about if mind control was darker than other force uses. If Ezra had forced pushed the walker off the ledge instead of mind controlling the driver of the walker to make them fall off the ledge, would that have been okay? I mean, okay? No. As dark? Like, probably not as dark. He's still, like, murdering a dude, right? But it is, like, enemy war as hell, as we talked about last week. 
But I, I think there is something less like psychologically dark about that, right? I'm just trying to put myself in the mind of the chicken walker pilot having somebody mind control me to basically commit suicide versus somebody shoving me over a ledge. The first is significantly darker than the latter, in my opinion. Yes, I agree. Mind control is one of the worst things you can do, in my opinion, because so much about conflict between good and evil often comes down to this idea of free will. You know, you often see villains who take control and say, this is for your own good. Like, I'm doing this to stop famine and war, but they take away people's free will and turn them into automatons or like a hive mind that they control and the heroes fight against that. So I think free will is one of the most important things in our lives. And I think in fiction, it comes out in this way where if you overtake someone's free will, that is very evil. And so, yeah, I think if Ezra had pushed the walker, if Ezra had used his lightsaber to deflect bolts so that it blew up, You know, obviously killing is on some level morally wrong, but I think subjugating someone's free will is probably one of the worst things you can. Yeah, I think I I think I Wedge don't put let me put words in your mouth, so feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but I I think I'm I'm coming from the same perspective that Wedge is coming from. I I think ninety-nine percent of the time I completely agree with you. When you're in a literal life or death, they're trying to kill you and you might have to kill them to stop them. I'm not sure that the method you use to kill them matters that much. Like, in the end, they're still as dead. And you're right, there might be, like, a moment or two of psychological terror more. You know, we see our heroes sometimes, like, they light the building on fire that the enemies are in. We've certainly seen, uh, in one of the episodes we're going to talk about today, Hera blows up a building that a number of uh, Imperials are in, that, that including maybe some not-so-terrible Imperials. I don't know, and, and fans definitely write in and let me know. It, it, I, I wonder if I'm getting too jaded by watching all these war movies. But I, I guess to me, like... War is wrong. War is terrible. I don't want people to ever fight wars. But when you're in that war situation, killing civilians, all that kind of stuff to me, I think, yes, there should be rules of war. It's not that anything goes in warfare. But I think when it comes to like soldiers on a battlefield, the meth- if, you're, if your goal is to kill someone, the method by which you kill them, I'm not sure it matters, especially if there's a sense of like, if you don't do it this way, you might not, you might die. Your side might not win when it is the side of good, right, and justice and all the ridiculousness of that statement, to be sure. But I think when we talk about Jedi and the Force, you know, when we see them use this power, it is to confuse enemies, it is to deflect their attention from something. So I think even within the Jedi, when they use this power, they are very careful about how they use it. It's like, it. so it reminds me a lot of, I know we talk about Avatar the Last Last Airbender on this podcast a whole ton, but like the idea of bloodbending and how that is like seen as significantly worse than using other powers or like just waterbending or whatever because it's it's overtaking the body of another person. And I feel like, yeah, this violation of bodily autonomy is kind of like a weird thing. I do want to put like giant asterisks after all of this and be like, being told to do something for like the greater health of an entire population of people is not subverting your free will. And I'm not gonna like get in a giant truck and rally against it in that way. Please and thank you. I agree that it's bad to kill somebody. In both, like, pushing them off a cliff or mind-controlling them into jumping off a cliff, right? Both bad. But I do think there's, like, shades of badness. And I think it's less a reflection on the person who's been killed and more a reflection on, like, the person doing the killing, I guess? The person who's being killed is dead now. 
So I think you're right, right in that, like, it doesn't necessarily matter how that happened. The person who did the killing is, is still alive. And I think there's that, like, I don't know, like, the, the shades of badness lead to more, like, a psychological degradation. I don't know if that's making there, any sense, but... There's a violence and a violation to the use of the the force in this way. And when what you mentioned earlier, right, talking about the pandemic and masking, yeah. right? <laughs> There's a difference between having a rule in place that says you have to wear a mask to come into a certain space, like an airplane, versus people coming on board the plane if they were to physically restrain them and force them to put on masks, right? That's the difference I see is like, you can have rules and say you have to follow these rules to participate in society but to physically force someone to do something is worse and then like this in this case mentally force them to do something mm -hmm. and i do think it's like it's a little weird because we're talking about a purely hypothetical situation right because mind control happily right. does not exist in the real world yeah i guess i'm just like to me when someone's trying to kill me that's the biggest violation of my agency and my bodily autonomy i can imagine and so to me i kind of feel like anything in response to that well let me ask let me ask you this <clears throat> we'll move past this i just think it's a fascinating conversation especially if our fans are writing in about it in the original movies obi-wan doing the whole these are not the droids you're looking for you know he's he, like you said he's trying to trick someone he's trying to get by he's trying to get the plans where they need to to stop genocidal destruction of planets i'm fine with him doing that in the in the prequels at one point someone comes in and tries to sell him the very subtly named death stick and obi-wan just takes control of this person's mind and tells him you're not going to sell death sticks anymore you're going to go home and rethink your life choices are death stick cigarettes is that what's happening here I, it, it yes. is i see <laughs> i think something like that to me that is fundamentally worse than mm -hmm. what ezra does because there's no life or death situation obi-wan is in no danger from this person some other people might like getting this guy to stop is a good thing but there's no immediate urgency to it which do you think is worse what ezra does or what obi-wan does what ezra does interesting yeah i'm gonna agree and again just like putting myself in the mind of the victim like i don't think what obi-wan does is great by any way shape or form right because right? like who knows about the life situation of this random death stick seller yeah i, I think they're both bad i, I, yeah. I want to again say both bad but yeah i just i don't know just like putting myself in the mind of this pilot and like watching myself kill myself seems really bad Whereas, like, having someone push me over a cliff seems less bad. Watching someone, like, tell me to not sell drugs slash cigarettes, also, like, kind of not great. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's the degrees of the will, right? And the death stick dealer probably to some degree realizes what he's doing is wrong. But whatever, you know, economic right. reason or, or something, he's doing it. And then to be convinced by the Jedi power to not do it anymore... Okay, is is overriding his free will, but maybe part of him was like, yeah, I probably shouldn't be doing. This. Whereas in this combat, the pilot of the walker, very much his intention is to eliminate his enemies and then to completely override that. I think if we go back and watch it, we probably even see the, the pilot struggling, right, against this thing that's controlling we him. We don't see the no? pilot at all, which I think is very intentional on like I the part of the creators. You see him at the beginning because it's a kid too, which is like extra because it's the he's got the cadet helmet on. We don't see him struggling. We see the feet of the walker moving towards the cliff and then like Ezra moving. I thought when Ezra 
did the grip of like gripping the i think it might just be like hands gripping okay we don't but that yeah yeah but we do like the the pilot's very much dehumanized with like the helmet and everything just like the original like these aren't the droids you're looking for stormtroopers right right yeah i think you're right it's a great question i'm sure like i think on some level i just don't believe in i like if it's a life or death fight i don't believe in the idea of honorable combat like just that's fair combat it's, there's no such thing as honor but i it's a great question you know and i think well, i mean i don't believe that because i think like yeah not killing non-combatants not attacking like food like there's all sorts of things i i think there. i think all war is hell and all was terrible mm-hmm. but yeah i just i just don't see it but i i'm that's why i love we're having these conversations and we will keep keep visiting these kind of questions We're going to dive back into the episodes in just one second, but I do want to quickly say that this episode is brought to you in part by support by Manscaped. They're the best in people's below-the-waist grooming for those who have outer genitals. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools tools for your family jewels. They write poetry. I don't write it. Manscaped (laughs) recently launched the Ultimate Hygiene Bundle, the Performance Package. Join over 4 million people worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer. Anyone who uses the discount code SWUP, the initials for this podcast, Star Wars Universe Podcast, SWUP. Go to manscaped.com and check it out. And I mentioned before, I've been using their products. Um, there's a deodorant that I'd never really thought would be useful, but actually is super helpful. Um, their boxers are incredibly supportive. And the uh, grooming tools are, I've tried them before and generally thought, like, this is not a great idea. I'd rather just do very individual stuff. But it works much better. The The blades are, are quite sharp, but also very safe. I am very good at cutting myself, no matter where on my body I'm shaving. <laughs> I have yet to cut myself. Uh, Ricky is making a face at that, so we will move past this. Uh, but I'll say that one of the great things is that this fourth generation trimmer they have, it has not only a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce the gramming uh, accidents, but it also has, uh, it's waterproof and it has a 400 LED spotlight. So mm. you can use it in the shower. You can use it to get an exact look. I never thought people would put this much attention into it, but it works. You know, the crop preserver is the deodorant. The crop reviver is kind of like a toner. I never thought it, but it just makes everything feel better. So check out Manscaped. Go to manscaped.com. Use the discount code SWUP and uh, get 20% off. But don't take 20% off because it's good safety material. (laughs) So now that we've further traumatized Riki with those comments, let's dive back into the episodes. So Kellis Manscapes, right? Oh yeah, I think he does. Hundred percent. Look at those mutton chops. There's no way he's not. Chops. He's not using some precision trimming down there. Here's the thing. Does Garazeb? Nah, he's like hairy all over. That would just I, be like. You know, some people they just want to just that one. <laughs> it's like part, one bald know? patch. That'd I, be strange. They talk about his smell a lot. Yeah. So maybe he should get the deodorant. <laughs> yeah, that might be the plan. <laughs> oh. We don't actually know anything about the um, body parts of the Lasat, so we don't know if it would work, but maybe. Manscaped, if you're listening, tell us what your products would do for different alien races. Yeah. We would love to know. Anyway, <laughs> let's get back to the actual episodes. Um, and by the way, folks, if you don't want to hear more episodes like that, tell me to revive my Patreon, because we can make it work. <laughs> but yeah, so episode three, these are three uh, different episodes. We're going to talk about each of them individually. We start with episode three, The Holocrons of Fate. So it's a standalone, but it's very much continuing the story up till now. And in this episode, Kanan, Jarrus, and Edra Bridger and some rebel soldiers are about to dock onto another rebel cruiser. The cruiser is seen to be damaged, so they board to investigate. There's a soldier lying on the ground who claims that a red blade cut him and was forced to give up the ghost crew location. 
They contact Hera only to find out that Maul has already captured them. And there's a great moment where they're like, they're sure it's Inquisitors, but nope, it's their old friend Maul. Kanan and Ezra agree to give Maul both the Sith and Jedi holocrons, which, by the way, I have some ethical questions about. <laughs> if not, the rest of the crew of the Ghost will die. Kanan and Ezra return to the Bendu to retrieve the Sith holocron. The Bendu first tests Kanan and Ezra by having them navigate a cave infested with Adalon's native Kranka Haxapod spiders. Uh, Kanan teaches Ezra to be able to move among the spiders without alerting them, very similar to as the Bendu taught Kanan, and to retrieve the holocron. The Bendu then warns the pair that if the Jedi and Sith holocrons are combined, they'd be able to grant the wielder immeasurable knowledge, but at a price. Kanan and Ezra then meet with Maul. Kanan rescues the ghost crew while Maul combines the holocrons with Ezra. Kanan manages to interrupt the process. Maul flees, gleefully muttering, he lives. Ezra receives visions of various locations, including twin sons, but cannot make sense of them. And Kanan assures him that they will find the answers. One of the things I think I'm most amazed at with Rebels is just there is never a moment that isn't necessary to the episode. Because think mm. about like how much happens in this episode. Like we haven't even mentioned all the great throwaway lines. The fact that they figure out that Maul has robotic legs and so they play with the magnetism of the ship <laughs> to try to trap him. And it all happens in 22 minutes. Mm. It, these are some of the most packed episodes I've ever seen of any show. Having, having Maul come back is delightful. Just because he's, like, such a fun character, and also, like, seeing his, I mean, maybe spoilers, but I think it's pretty clear that this is Obi-Wan who he's after to try and get to with, the like, the he lives thing. But I don't know, maybe I'm misremembering or misinterpreting that. And, and yeah, getting some fun exposition there mm-hmm. is great. Like, the, the post-Crimson Dawn Mall, I don't know. It's old man mall. Old, old man mall. Yeah, I, I wanted to say old man mall, but he doesn't seem like he's actually that old. But I guess he is technically. I don't know. He's in the prime of his life. He's like in retirement, just having a blast, doing the stuff that he wants to do. And I am here for it. It's funny because I remember when I first saw The Phantom Menace, like I'd seen all the advertisements and the character never speaks. And for the first half of the movie or so, it seems the character doesn't speak. And I knew in part this was because he was being played by a fight choreographer who didn't have much acting experience, Ray Park, although he's an amazing fighter. And he did de- he did fine in the acting, but he had very few lines. And I remember thinking, I think that character would be even more effective if he never spoke because mm. he's just so good as this silent terror. And now we've got all, I mean, now he is a chatterbox, absolutely. <laughs> and he's got so much to say, but it's great. It just, I feel like the, the evolution is earned because of how much he's gone through. If you look at him in Phantom Menace and look at him now, it's just such, such a character growth. Big glow up. Yeah. Yeah. And also like ugh, him referring to Ezra as like our apprentice to Kanan is just like chef's kiss. The like, oh, I didn't mean to blind you. I meant to kill you. Like, yeah, he's got he's got so many good lines. I'm very glad that he's talking. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I love when he he has the crew captive. But what he says to Hera is, and I quote, would it be rude of me to request a tour of your ship? Mm-hmm. Like he just has this kind of like genteelness that is so out of place for him. And so, and you know, he's mocking, but it's just something wonderful. I don't know if he is mocking. I think he, he ha- he's he got like similar to Hondo vibes in that it's this like rules Whoa. of engagement kind of thing. Like Hondo's in it for the, the laughs and in it for himself. And like Hondo loves Hondo and money. Whereas like, I mean, like Maul's clearly got... 
vengeance against the Sith, the Jedi, anyone who's ever wronged him. That one kid who looked at him funny, like highest on his priority list. But I think he still has the sort of rules of engagement decorum where he's like, ah, I'm a guest on your ship. Please give me a tour. I will murder you if you don't, but I'm going to ask politely first. It's very mirrored by something we'll see in the next episode where Grand Admiral Thrawn refers Mm. to his prisoner whose house he discovers they're in as his host. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's actually kind of interesting. It's that same, same, like, genteelness from both of them. Mm-hmm. Thrawn might be actually a better comparison to Maul, because they both have that, like, kind of cold, calculated creepiness right. about them. Yeah. I disagree mm-hmm. with, with these words, genteel, calculated, cold. I think Maul is just pure rage. Mm-hmm. And he tries to hide it, but he just can't. He does have those moments where he talks like that, but something happens and he just snaps and he Mm. just flies off the the handle pretty much immediately. And it's kind of terrifying, especially like compared to Thrawn. Mm. I, I don't know that we will ever see Thrawn angry because that's his character. You don't think he gives off the vibe that he could snap at any minute? He grabs an officer by the collar and is about to shake him and then apologizes. Yeah. Okay. See, I think, like, I think Thrawn also has big, like... Well, we'll talk about Thrawn. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> we'll talk about Thrawn in the next episode. But I, I agree that I think Maul is this, like, simmering pile of rage. Maybe maybe charismatic is a better word yeah. than, like, cold okay. or genteel. I, I, sure. Yeah, I don't think I would use cold, but I do use gen... I think he just, he wants to be... In part because I think he genuinely, when he says our apprentice, he genuinely wants mm-hmm. Kanan and him to team up and be like, okay, I tried to kill you. No big deal. Like, I love when he says to Maul, to Ezra, Ezra says, you betrayed me. And he says, no, I betrayed your friends. Yeah. And he means that so sincerely. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. No, he definitely wants, he genuinely wants Ezra as his apprentice. No yes. doubt. Yeah. Yes. Ma- Maul has little brother syndrome. Yeah. Right? Where he was Sidious's apprentice and he saw what Sidious did and became. And he's jealous. He wants that. He wants maybe not necessarily an empire, but he tries to form criminal empires, right? In the underworld. I think success, like, succeeds in forming criminal empires. But fails every time. Ah, Crimson Dawn was like a big thing for a long time. He He mentions that he, when he's talking to uh, um, Sabine. Sabine. He mentions that, you know, I ruled your planet, which yeah. mm-hmm. for like five out. days. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, how many of us have ruled a planet? But yeah, no, good point. Like, yeah. But he keeps grasping at these like Sith yeah. things. Mm-hmm. And like the apprentice, the same thing. He had his brother as an apprentice for, you know, like a couple of months, maybe before Sidious knocked him off. So he just wants that so badly. And I think, like, yeah, like, he wants Ezra to be his apprentice. Back to how he ended the episode with a line about he lives, he lives. I think it's actually kind of wonderfully obscure. Because I think you're right, Mm. it very much could be Obi-Wan. I think it also could be Anakin. Because Mm. they saw the twin sons, and we know that he had, you know, Maul fought, um, Maul tried to stop them from getting baby Anakin, and then um, I think during the, yeah during the Clone Wars, Maul and, and and Anakin definitely had some fights, and Maul knew about Anakin. But also, this is more of a stretch. But I think the fact that Padme was pregnant, but that Anakin's the idea that Anakin had would have had children, but they died. 
is something I think that at least in dark side circles, maybe it was getting, you know, that he might have known that. And so it could also be Anakin's child lives. Sure. I mean, I think any of those are possible. Yeah. I mean, we're pretty like we're kind of sticking with Tatooine because of the right. twin sons thing, even though like there's probably a lot of planets that have two sons. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, for I know like for us, Tatooine's the most relevant, most important. Yeah. Um, But yeah, yeah. Any. I, I I agree. Like any of that could be true. Like it does. It leaves it open enough to yeah. be a bunch of different things. Based on Clone Wars season seven. When Maul and Ahsoka have their epic duel, mm. and it, it it runs parallel to Revenge of the Sith plot, and all of the Jedi in those episodes, and Maul sense what's happening. I, I believe he says something to Ahsoka along the lines of basically like that Sidious has chosen his new apprentice, and it's your master. So I don't think it's a stretch for Maul to know that Anakin has become Darth Vader. Mm. Yeah, I think that could be it, too. Here's the moral question I want to ask. And I know this is not superhero ethics, but we're going to do at least two of these because the show is <laughs> bringing up some great questions. I think, this is my hot take, and you all can talk me out of it, that when our heroes are told that the only way to save the lives of their loved one or their family member or their friends is to hand the villain an incredible amount of power with which they can do incredibly destructive, terrible things, granted, almost all the time, Our heroes figure out a way to save everything. But I think going into the intention of I'm okay giving Maul this power because it'll let my friends live. I don't think that's okay. Like I have the same problem in um, the MCU with like, you know, Gamora telling Thanos how to get the one of the stones in order to save Nebula's life. Like, of course, it's horrible watching her be tortured, but he gets to kill trillions of people because of the power she helps give him. Yeah, I completely agree, especially like. You're giving them the power to also just kill your friends anyway, right? But I don't think I would make that decision because I'm, yeah. like, I know the logical part and the, like, my feelings part. But I, I agree that I wish they would have had, like, a plan in place. Like, yeah, okay, right. we're going to tell them that we're going to give them both the holocrans, but we're not actually going to do it. But the fact that they're just like, ah, you got us. Here's both holocrons. We know full well what will happen if you bring these together. Right. Yeah, it doesn't feel great. This is just a fiction thing. Yeah. I don't think you can have fiction where characters act in the way you say, Matthew, and still respect them as our protagonists. Well, and also, like, we wouldn't have much of a story to watch after. Anyway, yeah. I've been rewatching some old episodes of Clone Wars because I've gotten my partner Mary into it. And and the thing where I think is most interesting is that Kanan's one of the ones saying we should do this. That's 100% about attachment. Mm-hmm. Like Yoda specifically said, you know, he says to Luke, you have to be willing to let your friends die on Bespin. Uh, he says to other Padawans in, in the Clone Wars, like, look, sometimes you have to let the people you care about die as part of the larger war. And to to not do that is attachment. And so, yeah, I, I think you're right for the story, but I still think it's also interesting to question it. But it's also interesting to me that what K- in Kanan being a part of it, he's violating such a big part of the Jedi, the Jedi code. And I but I. Like, I think I agree with you there, but yeah, I just think it's really interesting to look at from that perspective. Yeah, I, I especially thought it was weird that they didn't didn't have, like, any sort of plan of, like, attempting to screw them all over, even a little bit, right? And it was right. just, it was just the, like, okay, you got us. We'll give you the mega weapon. Yeah, it seems. Yeah, I mean, he, he gets away because he's like, oh, I learned something, peace out. But he could have just, like, been like, cool, you gave me a nuclear bomb with these two holocrons. I'm taking them. Good to go. Yeah. I mean, like Ezra 
it seems like Ezra does develop a bit of a like, okay, it's all right. I'm going to prevent him from doing this, from actually putting it together and using it. Mm-hmm. And then like, doesn't, but kind of does when like the rest of the ghost folks come, come in and sort of snap mm-hmm. him out of this like, ooh, but look, there's power behind that door and knowledge. And I can see all the things that I want to see. Um, Yeah. And they end up like muddling this vision together. Like, do we ever mm-hmm. find, do we find out what Ezra was looking for just like a way to help his friends ezra is looking for a way to destroy the sith mm-hmm. right but does he actually see anything related to that or does he just see maul's vision no, i think he well, was overridden by maul mm-hmm. well but i think i mean he sees the twin sons and we know that the person who will bring balance to the force is born on tatooine and we also know that the person who will that the two people who will wipe out the sith are you know Anakin and his son, who are both from Tatooine. So yeah, I, I think I think he gets a major clue. He just doesn't mm. know to interpret it yet. But I think we, the audience, are supposed to know. Oh, okay. This this is definitely pointing to Anakin and to Luke because they're the ones who, by some definitions, bring balance to the Force. By some definitions, wipe out the Sith. And like, I mean, we get into all questions of that. That's a whole other thing. But mm-hmm. yeah. Did one other thing on the um the the whole point about the non attachment. A lot of what this episode is about is about Kanan and Ezra learning to kind of reconnect after they've had all this hardship uh, with it. And they hug. Yeah. Which, like, oh. again, like, can you imagine Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon hugging? Like, just they never showing affection between men showing affection between each other in any context is kind of unique and we need more of. But also for two Jedi to do it is just like, oh, Yoda's spinning in his grave. But I love it. <laughs> well, Yoda's not dead yet in this context, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I think like Kanan is the attachment Jedi though, right? Like, I mean, he's got Hera and I think he's become less attached after his like Jedi knighting thing, or at least like is trying to be because he thinks that's what he should be doing, especially like going off to like talk to the Bendu, not really being involved in missions anymore. But I think he's coming back around and realizing that like the attachment is giving him power, which Mm -hmm. leads to bad things according to jedi high council but he's not your traditional jedi for better or for worse i think for better but and it's so powerful that in that moment kanan not only says that he forgives ezra but tells ezra that he has to forgive himself which goes back to the conversation that ezra and hera had about him blaming himself for what happened to ahsoka and Mm -hmm. kanan at the temple and he shows that by not just saying, I will go get the holocron and I'll keep it. He says, Ezra, I trust you to use it. And if you think you should give it to Maul, I'll trust you. Yeah. Which I, oh. I, I think is dumb, but is a shot trust. <laughs> yeah. I, there's so much more we could say. I just want to say one more about this episode, and then we should probably move on, although I'll let you all have a last word, too, if you want it. There's a moment when Kanan gets sucked out of the ship and then kind of uses the force to come back in and to uh, fly in back to the ship. Mm-hmm. And I wrote in my notes, space vacuum doesn't work like that. But then I Googled it because I'm not an astrophysicist and found fairly convincing evidence that a human body can actually exist in the vacuum of space for up to about 15 seconds. Because there's no, there's nothing actually there. It's incredibly cold, but like there's nothing that's like taking the heat out of your body at quite the same rate. As I, I'm not a scientist. Don't yell at me in the comments. But this, I'll, I'll attach a link to the article that <laughs> talked about this. But also, yeah, like it's not the cold that's going to kill you. It's the asphyxiation. And if you get back inside within like 15 to 20 seconds, you're probably going to be fine. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So take that, all you Last Jedi haters and Leia haters. <laughs> no, I, I Kanan mean, does it too. I like that he had like crystal ice crystals forming on him because you're right. Like my again, not an astrophysicist either, but my understanding is also that like you, it's it's you're, the fact that there's no air in space is what's going to kill you, um, and then being very cold. Right. If you could like have just oxygen with you, um, but yeah, I I don't know. I was I was I liked that he had. Ice crystals, especially because Riki and I had just have just watched Visions recently, and there's an episode where there's two characters just like existing in outer space, no, no nothing whatsoever, and I'm like, you're both frozen to death. I don't know what's happening here. Mm-hmm. It's like, yay, thanks, Kanan. Yeah, yeah. Who wants to read the episode summary of episode four, The Antilles Extraction? The rebellion begins suffering heavy casualties due to Imperial ambushes on their convoys, and they risk running out of pilots. Fortunately, they receive a new tip from Fulcrum that several Imperial cadets at Sky Strike Academy are willing to, de- to defect. And this is a different Fulcrum than Ahsoka. Sabine is selected to infiltrate the Academy, and she meets and befriends a fellow cadet named Wedge Antilles. Ezra and Kanan wait in space with a transport ready to evacuate Sabine once she finds the defectors. Meanwhile, Governor Price and Agent Callus arrive at the Academy to root out the defectors. Sabine figures out Wedge is one of the defectors and assures him that she will get him and his friends, Hobby and Rake, into the Rebellion. Price then organizes a trap by arranging a training flight in space. Sabine and Wedge take the bait, only to find out that their fighters have been sabotaged. Sabine, Wedge, and Hobby are captured, and Rake is killed when Ezra and Kanan are forced to retreat. Price attempts to interrogate Sabine, but Sabine manages to knock her out and escape, freeing Wedge and Hobby as well. Callus secretly provides assistance to Sabine in order to repay his debt to Zeb. Sabine and Wedge manage to steal a TIE bomber, rendezvous with Ezra, and return to the rebel base safely. I think Wedge Antilles is one of the great examples of, like, to me, you know, Boba Fett has this, like, tiny little appearance in the movies, he also appears in the cartoon of the the holiday special. He becomes a fan favorite, and now you know he gets his own TV show. <clears throat> I, but I think of Wedge and Tilly's as kind of like the character who just had this incredible life after the movies because he he appears in the movies. He's in every one of the movies, but he never probably has more than three or four lines, uh, maybe five or six in uh, Empire Strikes Back. But then, like, there's an entire series of books about him, the, all the Rogue Squadron books, where he's the head of Rogue Squadron. He appears in so many books in the Legends canon. He appears in a number of books in the, in the um, canon canon now. Um, the, it should be Legends and canon, but yeah, fair enough. Mm-hmm. I'm bad with words. He's been, he appeared in the Rise of Skywalker. Uh, they got the actor back 30 years later, which was great. Wedge is just... You know, they took that small role and he became a fan favorite and now he's just everywhere. And I kind of love it. Yeah. I mean, so in New Hope, it's like he and Luke know each other from, like, not the Academy, because Luke never went to the Academy. Well, no, right? they're like Biggs no. who knew each other. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Biggs Darklighter. Also a yeah. great name. Is it just that Wedge Antilles has a cool name? Is that why he's so beloved? No, it's because... He's the only, like, non-main character to be in all three movies. Mm, okay. And he's yeah. the only pilot to survive both the Battle of Yavin and Endor. Hmm, okay. And he twice saves Luke. Well, once he saves Luke battling the Death Star, and then when Luke is unable to fire a harpoon to to stop the um 
uh, Walker in Empire, Wedge and his gunner do it instead. Cool. So I think yeah, he just gets a lot of cool. But just, it's, and I love that we're basically seeing his origin story as a pilot now. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense that he like defected from the Imperial Academy. It seems like Imperial Academy was a thing that a lot of people were recruited into before really realizing that the Empire was super evil, is super evil. Yeah, and it was it was neat hearing like Wedge's name, Hobby's name, and it's like, ah, we know these people. Rake? I don't remember him. Yeah, the most red shirt <laughs> character you could get in Star Wars. Yeah. yeah. It's like, here are two characters you recognize from the movies. And, and the one third. you don't. Which one will die? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I, I thought the little bit of tension at least introduced is that I didn't know if Rake was going to die as a red shirt or if he was the one who was going to go tell the Imperials, hey, these two are planning to escape. Like, sure. He was either a red shirt or a rat, but I didn't know which one. And like, I honestly wasn't expecting him to die this episode. I thought we'd at least get him for a, a couple episodes existing and then he'd be like our yeah. optional throwaway, but yeah. no. <laughs> and and so we've talked about Wedge. Javi is mm-hmm. one of the named other pilots in Rogue Squadron and Empire Strikes Back in the Hoth speeder battle. And he, so he does not die on screen, but it has been established that he dies in that battle. Mm-hmm. Crashing into General Veers's Adat, mm-hmm. in fact. And his oh, name yeah. is not actually Hobby. <laughs> yeah. So at the end boy. of this episode, Sabine comes back with Wedge and Javi and introduces them and calls, you know, Wedge lieutenant i believe wedge antilles which is weird because why would you retain your rank but whatever it's like airline points it carries over and then also and she does like this awkward pause hobby (laughs) no last name so it's like what the heck is hobby's last name i looked it up his hobby is actually just a nickname that he goes by his name is Derek clivian (laughs) i just so there you go Derek. I mean, like, I know we have, like, Luke and other pretty normal names, but for some reason, it just feels so... That you, yeah. You've got, like, Wedge Antilles, Biggs, Dark Lighter, Derek. I don't know. Clivian? <laughs> Clivian is, like, a little, yeah. Like, I know Sorry. Obi-Wan goes by the nickname Old Ben, but to me, like, it's, all, <laughs> it's, all, it's never just Ben Kenobi, and that's why Ben Solo... Like, it sounds like such a dumb name. Like, but even, okay, like, I don't know. I don't I mind ben solo. ben solo as much as Derek Clivian. I don't know. Like, Ben Luke, right? Like, Luke is just, like, a normal, okay, normal, quote-unquote, here we go. Like, a, a like Western canon name, right? It's, like, a biblical name. It's very, quote-unquote, normal, right? It's not a name that George Lucas made up specifically for this movie. But yeah, I don't know. Derek. Like Benjamin's pretty biblical. Yeah, yeah, right? And it's like, I don't know. It's just, it's a little, it's fun. It, it yeah. funny to me for some reason? I don't know. Well, so what'd you all think of this episode overall? <laughs> yeah, okay, let's talk about that instead of Derek Cleveland. <laughs> so this, I believe this episode is the first time we see TIE Interceptors on Rebels, yep. right? And if you're not familiar the regular tie fighter is just the kind of hexagonal winged one and then the tie interceptors have the the pointed wings that point forward with blasters on them right and it's very interesting because originally in the movies tie interceptors don't show up until return of the jedi so 
within Star Wars fandom, it was thought that that was a new fighter that was developed during the course of the Rebellion. And that is kind of how they played it off. But now we see the TIE Interceptors actually predate the Battle of Yavin. Right. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting that we get to see them. It definitely raises a lot of questions that I I, I hope this is going to answer. I I love this episode because I I love things that deepen our understanding of the world. And especially, but again, I find this episode kind of, I'm sorry, I'm on such the ethics kick today, but I find this episode (laughs) kind of morally troubling in a good way because, as you said, Sarah, like what what we're seeing is that there's lots of pilots, lots of people in the Empire in general who maybe sign up and then start to have real moral questions. To me, like, one of the things, and Lucas did this very intentionally, he made everyone nameless and faceless behind those white stormtrooper masks because he wanted you to feel no problem slaughtering them by the literal millions when they blow them all up in the Death Star. Once you tell me that like, it's not just Wedge is one in a million, but there's a number of pilots who feel this way, what that tells me is a lot of the people who Luke shoots down are probably in the, well, I can't get out, I have to follow orders or else I'm in trouble. I, you know, kind of like, you know, conscripted soldiers kind of thing. Uh, and in some cases, child soldiers. And like, I don't know, it just makes everything about Star Wars a lot. The idea that Star Wars is a good war in which we're only killing the bad people. The authors of the show are just kind of being like, nope, it, it's not that easy. Sorry, folks. There were good people wearing Imperial uniforms who just maybe didn't get a chance to get out. Maybe I shouldn't say good people because I think like I don't want to just say, well, they're just following orders because obviously that's a horrible sentiment. But like mm-hmm. they're at least morally questioned. I wonder how many people would have left if a Sabine had come to get them. Mm. And especially like at this point in time, because I don't think the Empire has descended into like it's obviously evil phase yet like it's still like i think there are still people who are like oh the empire is just bringing us order it's a new government they're just like imposing new rules this rebel uprising is is still in existence and being mm -hmm. like a nice fig leaf yeah and it's like a right yeah there's no death star we're not just like blowing up planets whole hog yet um like it's they're they're still evil but it's not like as as you would say mustache twirling evil yet I think so this idea of like people are just being conscripted like Luke wants to go join the Imperial Academy because it's just like right. what you do right and he says he hates the empire but still he wants to submit his application to the academy Mhm but all those people Matthew still follow their orders yeah and do stuff the bad things yeah mm-hmm. and I think that's what sets heroes apart in this universe Wedge risks his life to contact the rebellion and try to find a way out, and then it pays off for him, and he becomes a, an amazing hero after this. So I think there's something to be said for that kind of narrative of the people who take these extraordinary risks to get out of a bad situation are are the heroes, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm not saying that there's a whole bunch of other heroes. I'm just saying they're not all mustache. Twir- they're clearly not all mustache twirling evil people especially when you consider how many of them are recruited as children and how many are just fed a diet of propaganda. You know, you know, it's kind of like how after Vietnam, there was all this hate directed to returning U.S. vets. But then after like the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think not by everyone, but a lot of people on the, the more liberal side had an attitude of like what the army is doing is horrific and terrible. And we think soldiers who go along with clearly illegal orders have to be punished. But we also recognize that most of the soldiers were probably starting to get recruited at 15 or 16, coming from horrible life circumstances. Like, that there's all these factors that make us go, like, the, the private fighting the 
you know, isn't necessarily the one to direct the moral anger at. And that that's kind of all I mean is that I think, yeah, they're following orders. The, the morally better thing to do is to resist, especially after you see Alderaan, especially after all of that. But it, it to me, it, it introduces moral grayness instead of the like original George Lucas. Like these are all just the evil McEvil shoot them with, you know, no moral qualms. Yeah. And it's, uh, I don't know. It's just like really tricky because like life is really tricky. I don't know. The like administrator who's like typing up Death Star reports is like ultimately still working for the Empire, right? Even if they're doing some sort of like banal data entry job, they're still helping this like giant evil machine. But yeah, it's, I don't know. Killing people with faces is, is, is different than killing people without them, I guess, is like maybe the point you're trying to make. To me, there's a very interesting choice being made when you start introducing the idea of that the people who have been the bad guys throughout all the movies have a lot more moral grayness than we might have originally thought. Mm. Like, okay, I think, um, like, Callus in this uh, episode, too, right? Like, he's one of our big baddies, but ends up helping our heroes briefly to just, like, repay Zeb, right? He's like, tell Zeb we're even... Good, avoid the third and fifth floors thank you very much mm-hmm. and um. i love i love that moment i love that he says the full name he says tell garazeb aurelius we're even mm-hmm. and then i'm in love with him that's my head that's my <laughs> head cannon but i i just love that moment from calus i think especially because everyone thinks that they're captured sabine does not understand at all and when sabine asks him that's when he says we're even you know and it was just like yeah I was I didn't for a moment doubt him. I could he, and this I think is the voice actor just doing an incredible job. He's just so clearly sincere in that moment. Mhm. Yeah, it is like you're like, "Uh-oh, they're caught by Callus and he's just like, "We're even now. We're squaresies. I will help you this one time." And it's yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Those mutton chops, man. They get to you. I also I also like brown-haired Sabine, right? And I think we get another good Ezra being a little bit of a dick moment where he's like, oh, I've done this before. Why don't I get to lead this mission? Me, who always introduces myself as Jabba the Hutt and makes like a really big scene and is known, like my, my face is probably on posters. Why don't I get to be the one doing the secret infiltration mission? It's like, calm down, Ezra. You're not the only one here. We're going to have a Sabine episode now, which is good. Because like, yeah, I mean, we point out like Sabine was in the Imperial Academy for, didn't you say like a few years? Four years? Five years? Something like that? Yeah. yeah. I think she's another one of these who was going to be an Imperial pilot, or maybe even was, and then said, no, I can't do this, and defected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, like, when Wedge and Rake and Hobby are talking, they're like, or maybe it's just when Wedge is talking to Sabine, they say, like, oh, yeah, I want to get out, but, you know, that's not really an option. Before Sabine reveals, like, yes, it is, I'm one of the rebels that you contacted. Mm-hmm. Right. And then just a great scene after they're captured and Price is interrogating them. Oh, jeez. Because we, we we have not gotten a lot of uh, Governor Price, and this was her moment to shine. Mm. She right. just chews up that scenery and does a reasonable job in hand-to-hand combat against Sabine. Yeah. My like weird one nitpicky thing with this episode is I think General Price is animated really strangely. I don't know if, Matthew, if you picked up on that. I pointed it out to Riki. Her character model is just like super flat and her eyes are like really weirdly positioned on her face. I don't know. It's it's strange. It makes me feel like if she was maybe thrown in there last minute and they were going to have a different character instead of Governor Price, 
But I'm I'm glad that it is Price because we saw her in season one. We haven't seen much of her. She's she's now back in season three. We saw her like talking with Thrawn. And yeah, I'm glad that Price is getting back back into the fold. Yeah. I, I'm not good with artistic stuff, so I didn't notice that at all, but I, that doesn't mean it's not there by any means. And I'll also say, I, I think I may have mentioned this in different podcasts, but I just want to say again here, I love seeing Price especially because Thrawn is back. Because if you read the, the canonical now Thrawn novels, the first one, I think it's just called Star Wars Thrawn, makes clear that Thrawn and Price share a lot of history. Not Nothing romantic or anything, but like they both come up together through the imperial bureaucracy. Him in the military and her as a governor, like first as an administrator, but they're very connected in a lot of ways. So it's kind of great to see her coming back as part of a part of him coming back. Yeah, and like last episode, we saw her paying a lot of deference to Grand Admiral Thrawn now, especially like in the moment where Kalos kind of questions him she mm-hmm. like shoots him right down it's like Theron's got a plan don't you worry about it yep don't you worry your mutton chops there was also a kind of funny moment in the interrogation room when wedge accidentally gives up oh, yeah. sabine's name right and i don't know if this was intentional but it felt like a nod to the legends novels where wedge often goes on missions, like undercover missions, and is very bad at it. <laughs> so that's like part of his character. Is like he's a fighter pilot. They send him on these missions. Gosh knows why. And he's just like not a very good spy. I, I think that probably, yeah. Like, I think there's a lot of clear stuff. I mean, Thrawn himself is such a throwback to the, to the Legends canon that, yeah, that, that seems yeah. accurate to me. And I, I mean, I just love that moment also from a, like, this is why the the ghost has their, like, nicknames. The ghost crew has their nicknames, right? And oftentimes they'll not use them. And Riki and I yell at the TV, like, don't say they're real, man. I mean, it's a constant problem on superhero shows, too. Like, like you can't just go out and be like, Barry, yeah. you have to call him the Flash. <laughs> well, and, and in the next episode, we're going to talk about the problems that happen when the Empire discovers the identity of one of the people on the ship. So, yeah. One thing I just want to say quickly about this, this is more a throwback to last episode, but it is so great to see Sabine get her own episode and to really focus on her. And I just loved one little moment from the last episode when Darth Maul's getting the tour of the ship. He he like, oh, you see Zeb's room and it's like, <laughs> oh, it smells so bad. And then you see a room that it's not, we're not told, but it's clearly Sabine's room because it looks like, you know, the 16-year-old emo punk kid who's not allowed to be in art class, so they just draw on the walls of their room everywhere. And, like, Maul looks and is like, ugh, so artistic, or something like that. I, just, I think like, it's colorful or something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, exactly. And I just, you know in a moment, like, there's no one who could live in this room except... I think that's the first time we've seen Sabine's room, or at least the first time in a while. Um, so Yeah, oh, we, we, saw, it we saw it in one. season one, but we hadn't okay. seen it season yeah, two. So we yeah, it's been a while. Years, so. Yeah. Any other last things on this episode before we... Move to our last one. Last one. All right. Episode five. Riki, do you want to do the honors? Okay. Episode five. Hera's Heroes. The ghost crew makes a supply run to the Twi'lek Resistance on Ryloth, (laughs) only to find out from Cham that under Thrawn's leadership, the Imperials have begun to seize the upper hand and have captured their home and converted it into their headquarters. This also means that their Kalikori, an important family heirloom, is in Imperial hands as well. Determined to retrieve her Kalikori, Hera decides to return to her home and infiltrate the Imperial headquarters. 
She and Ezra sneak into the base while the rest of the crew and Cham distract the Imperial patrols. However, Thrawn predicts Hera's actions and captures her and Ezra and decides to keep her Kalakori for himself. He then arranges a deal with Cham where Hera and Ezra's lives will be spared if Cham turns himself in. However, with Chopper's help, Hera creates a distraction by destroying her home and the Imperial HQ with explosives, and everybody escapes on the ghost. Meanwhile, Thrawn observes the entire event, and impressed with Hera's ingenuity, decides to let the rebels escape. Back on the ghost, Hera reassures her crew that even though she wasn't able to recover her Kalakori, the most important thing is that she's back with her family and friends. The true Kalakori was inside her all along. Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> First of all, I didn't clock that it's called Hera's Heroes. It's presumably a reference to Hogan's Heroes. Heck yeah. Yeah. So that's fun. I also like, there's so much I love about this episode, but there's so much that I hate about this episode too. Really? Okay. What'd you not like? Um, it, it seems weirdly contrived. The MacGuffin comes out of nowhere as this like important family heirloom that we've just finding out exists. And she goes back to Cham's office, like the head of Ryloth to get this one family heirloom. It just feels weird. If they had, if it had been like, okay, we're going back in to break in to get a hard drive with some information on it that's really important. And we've got that to Chopper, but oh, wait, we're here. Let's go grab my Kalkori. It's this like important family heirloom. My dad and I are on better terms now, so I feel like we should grab that. And then like these events transpire, I think I'd be a little more chill with it. And like, I know they acknowledge in the episode that like hair going back for this item is maybe a little extra and like needlessly dangerous, but... It seems so needlessly dangerous, especially for this item that, like, we're only just learning about. She, at the end of the episode, is just like, oh, it doesn't matter that I don't have it. Right? Like, it, it, it feels weird that she went back exclusively for that into such a dangerous situation. I think they do a good job of establishing the importance yeah. of it. Yeah. And especially the connection to her mother, mm -hmm. who is past. And we see, you know, the events that led to that in The Bad Batch, right? Yeah. Right. So that to me, like having seen the Bad Batch, that really adds to this episode. I think maybe on first watch it could have seemed a little weird, but I, I really like the the use of the Kalakori as a MacGuffin, as you said. Yeah. I, I think I and maybe this is also one of those kind of like it's a bit of a redirect and I've thought more about it. The first time I watched it, I was just so happy that could we gotten Thrawn back we hadn't really seen much of him using his kind of like <laughs> magic, I understand your art, so I understand you. Which granted, if you actually think about it, makes no sense whatsoever. But it's kind of an awesome thing that's established about him in the, as in the character all the way back to those Legends novels. And so, yeah, I really like watching him do that. I, I think as you say that, I'm kind of like, yeah, I guess. If they maybe made this more of an arc and had more of like... Maybe like, you know, Hera and Chom were still having conflict. And so this was like, you know, Chom had like accused her of like not caring about the family or, or like they were back together. I think they could have done more to solidify it. But I felt like there was so much else that was so good in the episode that I kind of kind of let it slide. But again, that mean, you know, fans let us know. I'd be curious to see if other people were really bothered by it because it it does seem kind of out of the blue. But I guess it, it just feels earned by the rest of the episode. Yeah, I mean, I 
the rest of the episode is fantastic. Um, I, I really like it. I love that we get to, like, Chopper's origin story, too, which is just, like, wonderful and delightful. And just, like, being back on Ryloth, seeing Thrawn. I... Thrawn... Okay, I, I do agree that Thrawn's superpower of, like, I understand your art, so I understand you is maybe, like, blown a little bit out of proportion. But, oh. like, tell me you don't look at Guernica and get, like, a feeling about pre-World War... Like, pre-World War One Spain. Yeah, no, okay. Oh, Art. Well, I, I, I definitely do. I just wonder if I could look at Guernica, Michelangelo, and African art, or, you know, or something from, like, you know, the Inuit people and say, oh, looking at these four things tells me everything I need to know about humans. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, agreed completely. <laughs> and I know that that's, like, what Thrawn ends up doing. And, like, I don't know, I guess, like, spoiler alerts for the book, but Riki was telling me that, like, he does it with a piece of music, too. And it's kind of like. Yeah. Okay, Thrawn, you're just being Sherlock Holmes at, like, the later... Okay, but let's talk about this. Okay. His, his powers, as you say, powers. of yeah. perception, right, yeah. in the, the novels is complete BS and makes no sense. What he does here is not that, mm-hmm. right? Like, he shows a deep respect to Ryloth's culture and mm-hmm. understands that. So he recognizes the Kalakori, right? So that's part yeah. one. And then he sees um, a fresco, right? Fresco? No. It's what? like a mosaic, mosaic. mural. Yeah. Yeah. He sees a, a mosaic picture. painting picture on the wall mm-hmm. and recognizes Hera. Right. So, like, those, like, it's art. Yes, it's all art. But he does not, like, look at a piece of art from a culture and then figure out their battle strategy. As right. he does yeah. in the novels multiple times. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's if, wild. if you looked at the Calicori and was like, "Okay, I know that she'll always bank left after this fighting maneuver." <laughs> yeah, th- that. Yeah, I think I think you're actually right. In this episode, what he does makes total sense. And and like I said, I mean, like I said, he does get. It. I love that. Like when the Imperial soldiers like we should just burn the Calicori in a very almost kind of Vader move. He like grabs him by the lapels and about to shake him, but then goes, oh, "I'm sorry." And he both apologizes, but also has the most, like, wonderfully backhanded insult of, I just forget that not everyone appreciates art the way I do. <laughs> yeah, so you're right. He does get heated. And yeah. it's weird because it it's like the community thing of, like, I can forgive genocide, but I draw the line at destroying art. Yeah. Well, and it's, <laughs> it's just kind of weird moment where he's like, I, I'm sorry. I will not physically assault you. I'm just going to destroy your pride <laughs> with this cutting remark that you're probably yeah. not smart enough to understand anyway. Do I forget this guy's name? The um, Slavin. Slavin, thank you. Or Slavin. Slavin. I don't even know. But yeah, this is the person that like. Um, Cham- I think it's Slavin. Slavin. Yeah. Okay. Cham refers to him and is like his battle sl- strategy has been sloppy AF, but then turns out he has this one amazing move, and then we later realize that like clearly Thrawn has stepped in. Right. To, like, make Slavin amazing. But Slavin, Slavin is, like, quite bumbling. Like, they're interrogating Hera in front of a picture of Hera and her family. And he's just like, ah, slave, get back to the kitchens. Yeah. Right? And, like, dude, pay, like, a modicum's more attention. And I think you could have figured this out on your own. But it's something we've talked about with the Empire, that mm. they underestimate their, their enemies. Yeah, totally. And, and he cannot see what's literally right in front of him because of that. And... Also because of his racism, right? Yeah. Probably. And, like, uh, Cham even points out, like, you know, you don't, you guys don't have the benefit of the Empire underestimating you anymore. Right. 
Mm-hmm. What, and another thing we talked about that I think this is kind of a beautiful callback to in terms of how she tries to fool them and fools everyone but Thrawn. Uh, I think it was in the first season when we learned that Hera is Cham's daughter and, and she went back to, to deal with him. And we talked about how she code switches and how mm. she kind of like falls back into the accent, into like more of the mannerisms of where she grew up and how she doesn't do those things when she's with the rebels. I love that here it's very intentional. She she speaks in an accent and in a version that sounds kind of, I think it's very intended to make someone sound like, oh, they're not very intelligent. Like they're kind of a rural person, a peasant person who's just here because they're a servant. And like mm-hmm. none of that's true. It's all just like the racist assumptions you would put onto that kind of point of voice. Before we saw her code switching as, as ne- necessary, here she's code switching particularly to take advantage of the racism and the idiocy of the of the empire which i just i just love yeah she's using it like uh still like part of her stealth undercover mission right because ezra's in there too dressed in brand new the 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 stormtrooper biker armor which has a name and you know what it is scout thank you scout troopers um who I mean I love the the scout trooper scene as well, which I think we should talk about. But yeah, like it's it's very clear like she's putting it on, and I, she would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for that meddling Thrawn. Yeah, that's a phrase we'll probably use a lot over these next two seasons. Yeah, yeah. And at the end of the episode, when Thrawn lets them go, he he talks about this as an experiment. Mm. So I think he was trying to see how Hera would react in this situation and ultimately escape, right? And he lets them escape without putting up a fight. Yeah. Because, you know, we saw previously he let them escape as well because he said that's only three ships, don't worry about it. He's trying to track down, like, the full rebel fleet and trying to learn their battle strategies. And that's what I like about this episode is that he doesn't learn battle strategies from looking at art. He is studying Hera herself Mm -hmm. yeah i i agree at first i was like it's so weird that thrawn's just letting them go this seems really out of character but it's it's not right he doesn't care about the rebels as just the rebels he wants the whole rebel alliance yeah i mean i think it's that kind of attitude of like you know do you do you jump at like the first you know when you you pull start to pull one thread in a criminal organization do you just arrest that person or do you be like okay now that we have this in we're gonna follow them to find out who their per- their hot person is and their top person is you know like kind of mm-hmm. it, he's showing a lot of patience that he's not just gonna jump at the first opportunity in part because he's seen everyone else fail at that he really wants to do this right and it's mm-hmm. it makes him both a compelling villain and a scary villain which I really really like. Our heroes have been running rings around the Empire, and the only problem is that the Empire has a thousand people for every one of them, but we know what they're always going to outsmart them. I don't know that he, they're going to outsmart Thrawn, and that's that's kind of fantastic. Mm-hmm. One other just little moment that I loved is Hera comes out and she says, you know, Father, I'm so sorry. And, and he, of course, thinks it means because she's surrendering and because she's allowing this trade to go forward. And he says, no, no, it's okay. And she goes, no, <laughs> I mean about the house. And there's just like one moment where he's like, what? And then the house blows up. And I just, it's just comic gold, as well as it's like, of course, that's how she'd tell her father. You know, and he just has this like, wait, you were serious? Like, it was just, I love that moment. Yeah, it, it feels like it's playing into the trope of like the teen who has a house party when their parents are gone. I think you alluded to earlier, Matthew, but this whole like, you've just exploded a whole bunch of people. But like, not just Imperials, right? Like, the fact that Slavin mistook Hera for. A, like a kitchen worker 
implies that there were Twi'leks living and working in that house that she has just gone done exploded. Yeah, I don't, and I don't think she got a chance to warn them and have them get out. Yeah. Yeah, and like just choppers like gleefully placing bombs everywhere. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to do a brief spoiler section to talk about one or two things that came up. Is there any other last things you want to say about this episode, though? Before I we... want to talk about the scout trooper on the blurgs. Oh, go for it. And not yeah. thinking, I mean, it's like a very brief scene, but it's like really amazing and I love it. Um, where it's very beginning of the episode, Cham and Gobi, I think, is the other mm -hmm. name of his compatriot. And. There's a woman whose name starts with N, and I'm forgetting it. Um, yell at me in the comments. Um, they're escaping the Empire. The rebels are coming in, but he's like, we, we don't have time to land. So they're like, just okay, just turn around. Go in the exact opposite direction. We got you covered. The rebel ship takes out most of the Imperials, but there's one scout trooper following them. So like the, the ghost opens up its ramp for the blurgs to like jump backwards onto. And then... The scout trooper follows them, which you're, I mean, my gut instinct was like, uh-oh, he followed them, but obviously follows them immediately into, like, the entire ghost, ghost crew pointing blasters in their face. And Zeb says, like, you didn't think that one through, did ya? Which I think is just, like, <laughs> a delightful great. little moment. Yeah, and he's like, oh, kid doesn't have your armor yet, sorry, and just, like, clocks okay. him. It was yeah. also kind of funny to see the blurg just looking very confused in the background that it's now on the ship. Yeah, as they like get like scooped up by the thing. I love the the blurg too, which are the little like two legged, short armed tadpole looking guys that the Twilights are riding around in this episode. Yeah, well, and that's one of those funny things where I don't know if this happens for you, but like there'll be something that I never notice until someone else points it out, and then suddenly I can't help but see it everywhere. And for me. I would have never noticed the Blurg so much if we hadn't had a whole like episode about learning to ride a Blurg early in the first season of Mandalorian. But yeah, now I'm yeah. like, oh, look, it's the Blurgs. Yeah. And this came, yeah. this came years before that. It's not like Mandalorian started the Blurgs. The Blurgs were there way before, but now they're just everywhere. Yeah, they're great. They're just like, I don't know, they're adorable creatures too. And wonderful. And one dies, R.I.P. As well as like several other Twi'leks. I think that's more important, but... Mm. <laughs> Very true, very true. I would like to talk about something I noticed, which someone else on the internet noticed. One other human being, at least, has asked this question, and it is, why does Thrawn mispronounce Hera's name? Mm. He also mispronounced Hondo's name. We didn't talk about that. So we pronounce it Hera Syndulla. And Thrawn pronounces it Sindula. And the easy answer is no one told Lars Mikkelsen how to pronounce this name. And he just applied like his Danish accent to it. Right. But I think an interesting thing is that, you know, names have power, right? In fantasy mm -hmm. settings, if you know someone's name, you can cast spells and whatnot. And I think intentionally mispronouncing someone's name also carries with it some power and some like basically like a slap to the face mm -hmm. and especially for someone like Thrawn whose own name is really weird his actual Chiss name is Mithron Nuru Odo right and I believe it's actually Anakin who nicknames him Thrawn because he cannot figure out how to pronounce that whole thing actually no it's uh and this is just it's only really explained in the books it's that Chiss names often have three parts and they have to do with like their family and their history. And so you often use what's called like the middle sect because like his his name is like Myth 
apostrophe, Ron, I think apostrophe something, or raw apostrophe n something. So you always take like the last syllable from the first part, the entire second part, and then the first syllable of the of the third part. Huh. And it's it's Thrawn who says to Anakin, just call him Thrawn. <laughs> I just read those books. Sorry. No, it's great. It's great. I love it. Also, I mean, it's better I'm than cor- like, I'm going to just call you Chewy because I'm not pronouncing that every time. Yeah. Also, while I'm correcting weird things, but no problems whatsoever, but just so we don't get more emails. Guernica, you're right, is incredibly important painting, but it's about Spanish Civil War. It's not pre-World War One. Okay, I thought it was right, but it's like right before... It's oh no, it's not pre. It's like interwar period. Right. It's it's about the Spanish Civil War that takes place. It's about the bombing of Guernica. The bombing of Guernica. Yeah. Yeah, but but that happens in the Spanish Civil War before World War Two. So I think okay. that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, I think I meant to say before World like it's the interwar period. I didn't realize it was Spanish Civil War. I thought it was yeah. just like interwar Spain. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sorry, every art history teacher I've had. <laughs> anyway. So yeah, I was gonna say, especially for someone like Thrawn, who is literally the only non-human that we see in the Empire. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. There, there's something to it about him being alone and having to be in a different culture and not be able to use his own full name because no one can pronounce it. And I think in the novels, only Emperor Palpatine is the one who uses his full name. So again, like that's kind of a, I have power over you because I am the one who knows your full name and can actually say it. Here's my question, though, because we know that Hera code switches. And I know certainly that like in our own world, and this is like, I think a lot of people are starting to stop doing this. People will often like tell people a easier to pronounce version of their name because it's just easier than like constantly correcting people. And like, Mm. you know, uh, like Riki, you wrote a really great article about this, about how your name is Riki, not Ricky. And like, that's important. The point I'm getting to is kind of wondering if if maybe Thrawn thinks that actually is the real pronunciation and Syndulla is what she tells non-Twi'leks because it's just it's easier uh, or just because that's kind of like the, the, the equivalent of the Anglicization, like the humanization of her name. Have we ever heard Cham in his accent say his last name? I can't remember. I was going to say a similar thing, Matthew. It has big, I'm pronouncing your name correctly energy, right. even if he's not actually doing it. Like if correct means in my like, yeah. Danish slash accent. Yeah, that's possible too. But all, But the fact that in the previous episode, he pronounced Hondo's name differently than every other character mm-hmm. we've had also. Right. So Hondo Onaka is how everyone says it. And he said something more like... Onaka? O- Onaka. Yeah. Right. But I, yeah, I think it tracks like the same way, right? Yeah. Of like, maybe maybe he's trying to pronounce it in the quote-unquote weak way, way, which wouldn't be to pronounce it at all because weak way don't have a spoken language. Oh, yeah. Like, it, it feels like he's like, no, no, I'm telling you the correct way of pronouncing your name because I'm correct because I'm Thrawn. Right. One thing that some of the later Thrawn novels establish is that their language is so different than basic, which is the language in Star Wars that everyone's supposed to be speaking. Like, there's some sounds in basic that don't occur in the Chiss language, and so he will often mispronounce them and has to be corrected. Yeah, it, it, there's so many layers here, because you've got a person who doesn't speak human languages, who's trying to speak human and Twi'lek languages, played by an actor who didn't grow up speaking English, who speaks Danish and is now has learned English. So yeah, I think like, I kind of would love Dave Filoni to, to clarify this at some point. Like, is it, <laughs> I mean, he may not want to, because he may not want to embarrass Mickelson, but like, is this, is this kind of like how Tarkin keeps referring to Princess Leah? Which as far as I understand is like, that was one of the best actors they had on set and George Lucas was a nobody and didn't want to correct him. Yeah, it could be the actor. It could be that he's doing it intentionally. 
It could be to show that he's he doesn't understand. Well, no one told Billy D. Williams that it was Han. Yeah, so it's like Han the whole time. Yeah, Which I, I is mean, one of the greatest retcons oh gosh, of all so time good. in Solo. I know you hate Solo, I love Solo, but the fact that it corrected this mistake or explained this mistake is awesome. I, I mean, I, I agree that the real answer is probably like either they didn't tell Lars because he is a big name and they don't want to be like BT Dubs. It's it's Onaka. It's Sindula. Or they did correct him, but the takes where they like pre-correcting him or just better takes. So they just use those regardless. But I like the like sort of canony, retconny ways that yeah you're we're bringing up because yeah like it it feels like it fits so great with Thrawn, especially his whole like art is so important vibes like it has big big colonizer vibes coming off Thrawn, right mm-hmm. with like i'm a yeah. i'm a keep all this art this art is really important to me because it teaches me so much about these cultures the people of those cultures no screw them yeah but the art is really cool and i like i know how to cred- correctly pronounce the names and uh yeah i mean like i don't know if timothy zahn's ever talked about this but i i have to imagine that there's some like british imperial person who was like rather famously known for being like oh no i want to go into again i'm using the language at that time like you know the darkest heart of africa to find Mm. their art to learn more about these peoples you know that kind of thing and like i wonder if there was any like actual historical figure who helped inspire this because it you're right it's 100 percent colonizer energy Mm -hmm. Um, certainly i know probably a lot probably a load (laughs) yeah i mean like i don't even look like i know theodore roosevelt the Museum of Natural History in New York City is a fantastic museum, and they've modernized a lot, but it used to be pretty horrible because it was both, like, all this stuff of, like, dead animals that he'd gone out and shot, but also because there was a lot of these, like, panoramas of the life of various, you know, tribal peoples that Theodore Roosevelt had, like, collected these artifacts to learn more about the the various tribals, uh, you know, groups and stuff like that, so. Yeah. Well, like, the, the British Museum also has like elgin marbles still um and like a whole bunch of other i think they bought pharaohs and various other like egyptian artifacts that the people whose like culture that's those artifacts were stolen from are like can we have those back please and they're like no 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 we're protecting them the british museum currently has the most lawsuits in process against it of any institution in the world because there's so, I think more than a hundred nations are in the process of suing the British Museum to get their stuff back. Yeah, good. <laughs> this belongs in a museum in its home country. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Any last things either you want to say? No, we're good. I'll just say quickly. Um, a lot of great things being done. Sarah and Riki have have talked about all the great stuff that they're doing. Uh, you can check out their links. We'll make sure to have them in the show notes. If you want to know more about this podcast and my other podcasts, go to theethicalpanda.com. All one word. There you can also find all the ways to contact us. As you heard, we love listener feedback. Let us know what you think. We'd love to talk about it. Also, please go to manscaped.com. If you see anything you like for yourself or a partner or a friend or a family member, whatever it is. Maybe family member would be a little weird, but I don't want to, you know, I don't want to shame. Siblings, that's fine. Yeah, some families. Uh, I I don't want my sister buying me any of this stuff. But, you know, whatever Fair. your family might be, uh, millennials are weird. But <laughs> the point is, go to manscaped.com and use the promo code SWUP. S-W-U-P, the initials of the show, get 20% off. So if you haven't seen more of the show, you want to check out. Definitely I'd suggest doing it. We're going to some major spoilers. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great day. And for everybody else, spoilers in three, two, one. We're starting to get those hints that Talus is uh, Fulcrum.
Yeah, I think we talked about... So in the very first episode, uh, we we hear Fulcrum. Right. And knowing that it's Callus, you're like, oh yeah, that's Callus with vocal modulation. Similar to like knowing that Fulcrum is Ahsoka, you can tell like, oh yeah, that's Ahsoka. But yeah, I think it's like vague enough. And I love the very like, okay, tell Zeb we're even explanation. Although like in universe, I don't think it makes makes a load of sense. Like I think Callus could have just told Sabine, I'm Fulcrum. Avoid the third and fifth floors. Peace. But like as an audience watching the story, I love that it's kept open enough that like obviously we can't have Callus actively trying to harm Sabine from escaping, but we need a reason as to why he's doing that that's not obviously Oh, he's Fulcrum. I think I would believe that A having Callus knows who Darth Vader is. And knows mm-hmm. that Darth Vader is very good at getting people to tell him things that they don't want to tell. And also he knows Sabine is, maybe in his mind, stupid enough to walk into literally the belly of the beast in this Imperial Academy. If I'm if I'm callous, mm-hmm. I'm not trusting my life to the idea that Sabine won't give up the secret that I'm just about to tell her. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, that makes sense too. I, I was going to go in the other direction and say that it might not be believable. For for Callus to tell Sabine I'm Fulcrum, like he might not be believed because of how strong of an antagonist he's been to them up right. to this point. Like you mean Sabine wouldn't believe him? Yeah. Yeah. It's over the course of this season we are going to get more of Fulcrum, more and then the reveal and Callus acting as Fulcrum. And that's going to establish trust, and they're still not gonna trust him, I think, at yeah. some point. Mm. And it reminds me of the rise of Skywalker when Hux <laughs> reveals that he was the spy. It's like, no, like this, this is just not good. Yeah. Like it's not believable. I don't know. I believe Hux, but yeah, anyway. Oh yeah. I definitely believe, but I believe also Hux is completely out for Like I, there's a lot of reasons I don't like that movie. None of which have to do with Ray. Cause Ray is awesome, but I would have been a lot more upset at that movie. If there'd been some level of this is Hux's redemption. And so the fact mm-hmm. that it's like, yeah, Hux, you you try to be a spy because you're a turncoat and you'll turn on everyone and we're glad you helped us. But when he gets shot, everybody cheered in the audience. Like, I was fine with that. Yeah. The one other interpretation I think I could offer for Callus, is, and I, I, I want to look very closely to see if we get more clues, is that maybe he thinks delivering one or two secret messages and now doing this, like maybe he is feeling like, now that I've done this, now I'm even with Garazeb and it's over. Mm, like maybe he yeah. thinks he's not going to keep sending Fulcrum messages. That could be. I know. So, okay. Previous episode, we talked about in in our spoiler section, whether or not we thought that Callus was already Fulcrum. And I think we all kind of agreed like, no, not yet. But now looking back and realizing how quickly we get, hey, it's new Fulcrum. I think he is already like in the previous episode when Thrawn comes in and sorry, pre- like this is two episodes ago, one episode for us yeah. words. Um, and, and he's kind of chastising Thrawn for murdering civilians. Like, I think he's already Fulcrum at that point. And yeah, while, like, I don't disagree with that interpretation of, like, maybe he does. Maybe he's like, okay, that's it. I can quit anytime I want. We're done. I I don't know. I think he's too, he's questioned the Empire too much at this point to not just, like, go full Fulcrum. Right. Yeah, and he has a moment in this episode where Governor Price needles him. Right. Right? She says something like, maybe I'll teach you something. Mm. And and he has a look on his face like he's just fed up with this 
nonsense yeah. of the backstabbing and the everyone out for themselves attitude of the empire. Mm-hmm. I think it's really true. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. it's it, it speaks to the, how good the writing is that he's such. Part of me is so frustrated that we never get to see like the flashback. We never get to see like you could have easily had an episode where once they all know it's callous and they're like, "How did this happen?" And he's like, "Let me tell you." And so the whole episode is basically through Callus's eyes, the flashback of what actually happened. Mm-hmm. And I love that we never get that. I love that we just never, I want it, but I love that we never get it. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you that I'm glad we don't get the full, I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe we will in a novel at some point. Right. Some, somewhere down the line. I'm not like necessarily opposed to it. But yeah, I love that in this, we, we don't get the flashback of like, and here's why. Like, it seems obvious why, right? Like the moment he had with, Zeb on that moon of Geonosis right. changed so much in him. And like going back to the M, like seeing Zeb go back to his family of the rebels and Zeb going back to like the empire. Who's like, Oh, I yeah. guess you're still alive. That, Neat. Right. That scene at the end of the episode, honorable, the honorable ones, I think it's called where he is sitting alone in his room. Was yeah. j- I, I love that scene. I mean, nothing happens, right? Like there's, <laughs> okay which so both of you which sitting alone in their room scene are you like that one or the one where ezra opens the sith holocron is your favorite oh callus really yeah because the sith holocron he's actually he's not just sitting in his room he's doing something incredibly significant that's fair i would have compared him just sitting in his room spoilers for bad batch to crossfire sitting alone mm. in his room during Bad mm. Batch. To me, that's in their the barracks. Yeah, yeah, the barracks. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I just, I love it. And I think to me, there is still some grayness of, especially the way he is such a person of honor. And I think he's mm-hmm. also someone for whom disloyalty is hard for him to believe, like that he would do. I could see him being the sort of person who's having all of these doubts about the Empire but he can't say to himself, I am going to betray my oath to the Empire. Mm. So what he says is, I owe a debt of honor to this Gerizeb person. And so I'm going to start doing this. And then once he starts, like he goes, you know, also he then, you know, meet, realizes that Thrawn is coming back, who loves murdering civilians. You know, mm-hmm. now, as we saw with the, in the last episode, the Empire is attacking unarmed civilian transports. Um, even when they're like, please don't shoot us like we surrender. I, I think I think it's like I don't think that the entire process of Callus changing everything he believes happens that day that he meets Garazeb, but I think that like that starts a process that over the course of this episode, we're, this season, we're watching happen. All right, well, I think that's about all I had to say in a spoiler. We're we're passing the ninety minute mark, which I think is our longest so far. Uh, any other last comments though from either of you before we wrap up? All right. Well, on behalf of all of us, all three of us, thank you all for listening. Love to hear your comments. Theethicalpanda.com. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Swap, 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 swap. Maniacal laugh. Maniacal laugh.